Welcome to it. I'm Michael Apple. Joining me today is a man I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Political activist in his younger years, career public servant, former cabinet spokesperson and GCIS chief executive, perhaps most importantly, whistleblower. Tembo Maseko, thanks for giving us some of your time today. Uh, I want to get into volume one of the report that makes a distinction between facilitators, followers, enablers of state capture. You are none of these. You're singled out as a resistor. Uh, you were a resistor during apartheid and once again in a democratic era. How does that term sit with you, resistor? <laughs> uh, let me tell you, Michael, it took me a while to even accept the term um, whistleblower. But I think that uh, I don't have issues with the, with the term because I did defy President Zuma and the Guptas and I did resist state capture. And as a consequence, I ended up uh, in the wilderness because uh, I was removed from my posts in government. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a second. I want to take you to, to former President Jacob Zuma's testimony at the commission. Um, I suspect you were listening much like the rest of the country. He said openly that he was behind the creation of the New Age newspaper. Now, in hindsight, and I say in hindsight because it wasn't actually public knowledge that Mr. Zuma was behind the creation of TNA initially. With hindsight, should it have been a red flag that you had a head of state who was actively involved in the creation of a media enterprise? Should that have been a red flag? I think that it was well known through the grapevine in government that, in fact, um, President Zuma was assisting the Gupta family with their business enterprises. And in fact, there's a book written by one of the TNA employees who subsequently left the country who confirmed that several meetings were heard, were held with uh, President Zuma before the newspaper was launched. So although the public had not known that before, when that book was published and when President Zuma went to the Zondo Commission, he basically confirmed what was already known in the grapevine among people who were in government and in the in the ANC circles. Yeah, that was Rajesh Sundaram. I remember his testimony. Now, the New Age newspaper, its, yeah. its stance or its yeah. selling point was that it was going to be pro-South African. And this was born out of a media space where the ANC and government said that, that media was too negative towards uh, the, the governing party and the government. Were you in support of such a notion? Do you think that, that m media has been too critical of the government and the ANC at parts uh, in history in South Africa? Um, Michael, there had been discussions within the ruling party, the ANC, for many years about the need to establish an, an, an ANC newspaper um, or a government newspaper. I was never in support of that because I was of the view that, in fact, government's work must speak for itself, and you don't need a propaganda machinery, because that's essentially that, that's what it would have been. So I was not sub supportive of that new, new initiative. But what became very clear is that when the Guptas came to the picture, they then stole a discussion document that was within ANC circles and ended up creating the New Age newspaper with the view to becoming... A propaganda machinery initially we thought, but it was very clear that, in fact, the real idea behind the establishment of the New Age newspaper was a, a money-making scheme for the Gupta family. There was no intention at all to communicate any message, messages about what government was doing. It was essentially a platform used to swindle resources from state 
owned enterprises and government in, in general. So it, it, it was a scam. Well, let's speak about the money. Uh, near the end of 2010, you receive a phone call from Ajay Gupta where he wants something from you. In your own words, what was the demand? But essentially, what he was saying was that he wanted me to collect all the advertising budgets from the various government departments, consolidate them into GCIS, and then transfer that whole budget to his New Age newspaper. Interestingly, your listeners and viewers would be interested to know that, in fact, as I was going to the meeting with Ajay Gupta, that's when I got a call from the former President Zuma, basically saying there are these Gupta brothers who need my assistance and I should go and, and, and assist them. So that call happened as I was driving, driving to the meeting with Ajay Gupta. So at the meeting with Gupta, Ajay Gupta, I made it very clear that I was not going to be part of such a scheme because government has processes and procedures that it follows and there is no way I would be willing to actually transfer a whole budget of government to a single media house. So he, he made it very clear to me that, in fact, that's what he wanted me to do. And if there was no cooperation I was getting from the various ministers and departments, I should come and report to him and he will summon all of those ministers to the sex and world should be in, that is his house, and he would give them instructions. And that's when I knew that I took exception to this, and that's when I knew that I was not going to be part of the of his criminal enterprise. And I got extremely worried that, in fact, I had received a call from Zuma to say, I, I must go and assist them. I assume you'd never, ever received a call of this kind from, from the head of state before to say, go help these particular people. Interestingly, I mean, I'd, I'd, as CEO of GCIS, I had very close working relationships with the heads, heads of state as a must. Uh, I had regular meetings with President Zuma, I mean, President Mbeki. I had regular meetings with um, President Mutlante when he was in that position. And when Zuma was appointed, I tried to have meetings with him, and all my requests for meetings were, were declined. So I'd never had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. In fact, the call that he made to me, Zuma made to me to meet the Gupta brothers, was the first and only call I received from him to say, I must help the Gupta brothers. And in all my meetings my meetings and conversations with Mbeki and Mutlante, at no stage did they call me to say, go and help these business people with whatever they wanted from you. So it was the first call. So AJ Gupta, in that meeting you had, he spoke very condescendingly about ministers who wouldn't cooperate. Did you think that this was all a sort of a show of force? Did you actually think at the time that they had that sort of power they were claiming to have? It became very clear to me that, in fact, um, Ajay Gupta wanted to demonstrate to me that he, he had power over government ministers. And I saw that by the fact that I get a call on my way to meeting him from the head of state, Zuma, Zuma himself. And secondly, at the meeting, and as I give details of this in my book, he told me that he has regular meetings with Zuma at his house. He told me that a number of ministers are, are required to come and have meetings with him at the Sex and World uh, Shabin, as it was known. So it was clearly an attempt to demonstrate to me that he had power over government, and I took a strong exception to, to, to that, and I, I was very clear in my head that I was not going to be part of that kind of conduct by somebody who was not part of government. Now, you left that meeting and you were very upset and you, you actually communicated with uh, 
the late former minister Collins Chobane, as well as the deputy president Moklante at the time. I think it was President Moklante or Deputy President Moklante who who said to you that the the entire ANC National Executive Committee was actually concerned about the levels of influence that the Gupta family had over Mr. Zuma. And this was late 2010, 2011. This is two years before the Guptas would even land at Waterkloof Air Force Base. So the ANC itself at that point in 2010, late 2010, was already uncomfortable with the level of influence. Is that correct? Without any shade of a doubt. I mean, Minister, the late Minister Chavani, when I informed him about this meeting I had with Ajay Gupta, he made it very clear that he was extremely worried about the, the situation, um, he had been contacted by quite a number of government officials and ministers about this. Deputy President McClante also confirmed this. And in my subsequent meetings with the, when the ANC decided that they wanted to conduct an investigation, Gwede uh, Mantasho was Secretary General at that stage, also did say that the ANC was aware of the problem and they were trying to find a way of dealing with it. But it was very clear that the ANC was dealing with a, what I term the problem of incumbency, of not being able to raise questions and challenge its president on matters that was of great concerns to, to many South Africans and also to many ministers in government. In fact, the Integrity Commission of the ANC recommended that Zuma step down in 2013 after the Waterkloof uh, debacle, let's say. And the NEC and Mr. Zuma obviously ignored those calls and we ended up having Mr. Zuma as president for another five years. You you would end up speaking to Esso Pahad, Joel Nichitenzi, and this is quote from the, the report, Quote, the more I knew, nothing was going to happen. Close quote. In other words, these guys were untouchable. That became clear to you? That became very clear. And, and, and um, I mean, I spoke to as many people who could listen to me about the situation. And many, many government officials were also raising serious concerns about the kind of approaches that they were getting from, from the, 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 the Gupta family. But it was very clear that uh, Mr. Zuma had uh, significant support in the National Executive Committee and people were prepared to whisper in the corridors but were not strong enough to actually stand up and, and challenge what was uh, taking place. And that's confirmed by the fact that when the NEC realized that they could not ignore the issue, they decided to appoint its Secretary General, their Secretary General, Kwari Mantesha, to investigate. I was the only person who was willing to... <laughs> go in and, and, and give a report, a, 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 an affidavit to Mantashe, who had told me that, in fact, many people had promised him that they would come and give evidence, but it turned out that no one was willing to actually come and give evidence of what they had been subjected to by the Gupta family. So it is very clear in my mind that a lot of ANC leaders were aware of what was taking place, they just did not have the, 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 the wherewithal to actually deal with the matter directly. So at the end of January 2010, um, I mean, you are, you are eventually removed in, in early February uh, 2011. When, when you were to be redeployed at the instruction of, of President Zuma, uh, but it was Mr. Chabane said you, quote-unquote, wouldn't be thrown into the street. This must have been a, a real low point in your career. It was. I mean, the, the, the way the events unfolded was, was, was quite unfortunate and very disturbing for me. 
And I couldn't believe that the party, my party that I'd been uh, part of for, for, for decades at that point, w- would actually treat one of its own in that manner. Firstly, I mean, Zuma instructed Chabane to remove re- remove me from GCIS. And then when I'm sitting in the cabinet meeting, the story is leaked to the media to announce that, in fact, I had been fired from GCIS. So I learned about it in the newspaper, and it was clear that Zuma's plan was that I would actually be out of government. It was Chabane's um, move or decision to say, you're not going to be thrown into the streets. I'll find a way of getting you appointed into another department. And Zuma himself was not aware that, in fact, there had been such a move. And that's how I ended up in the Department of Public Service and Administration which was basically Chabane's attempt to try and make sure that I still remain within employment. But it was very clear that Chabane himself knew that the way this whole move was done was also amounting to unfair labor practice. And he knew that I would have legal recourse because there's no way that a senior government official could be fired in the manner that Zuma wanted me to be fired. Yeah, it it would have to, according to the prescripts of the Lord, it has to be with your knowledge, it has to be in the public interest. There are a whole bunch of boxes that need to be ticked, none of them were ticked. That cabinet statement that came out, that bore your name, you had no knowledge of it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that went wrong there. I want to pick up on what the DCJ had to say about the fact that uh, the former president conveniently lays the blame at your friend's door, the former Minister Chabane, saying that it was in fact him who was name-dropping. And this is something that's been convenient for somebody like former Ambassador Bruce Kulwane, who also took the the hit and said, I was name-dropping when I said that the president wanted the Guptas to land at the Air Force Base. This notion of name-dropping, I assume you don't buy it. I don't buy it. I mean, I, I, I was really disappointed again when I was watching President Zuma giving testimony at the Zondo Commission, basically telling a blue lie to say President or Minister Chabane is the one who requested my removal from GCIS because they were, the relationship had broken down. This was a blue lie, and we provided evidence to the Zondo Commission that, in fact, he had given me the, the, the highest rating of good performance in my job as CEO of GCIS. We had played golf many times with the minister. So for, for President Zuma to, in a public platform, tell a lie to that extent was something that further demonstrated to me that, in fact, he did lack integrity as, as a head of state. When you did ultimately leave the public service, and I'd like you to tell me when that was, what, what waited in store for you carrying the name Tembo Maseko and all that came with that name? How were you treated by your comrades? I decided to leave uh, public service after a few months working as DG of public service and administration. And that was largely because I did feel a bit unwelcome in that department, not necessarily by staff, but the, by, by the minister, uh, Minister Baloy there, because I was essentially imposed on him and the staff in the department were not even told I was coming. So I decided this was not going to work for me. And I left public service. But when I left, it was very clear that uh, many people were actually unhappy about the fact that I had uh, spoken out and exposed the fact that um, I had refused to cooperate um, with the Guptas on instruction of uh, the then former President Zuma. And I was actually isolated to some extent. Um, Many public servants 
did not necessarily want to dissociate themselves from me, but they just did not know how to deal with me. And they didn't want to be seen to be associated with somebody who was considered um, a snitch at the time. And it led to a period of isolation uh, from my old comrades, from former government officials. But the most difficult part was just not being able to make a living because I couldn't get a job in the public sector. The private sector also did not want to be seen to be associating with somebody who was seen to be an enemy of the state. More difficult was the fact that I could not even raise funding to start um, businesses because um, when I went to banks and public finance institutions, I was considered uh, a politically exposed person. So it was just impossible to, to, to make a living. So you end up having to borrow from your future by, you know, mm. dipping into your life policies, your life insurances, just to make ends meet. So those years became extremely difficult. And that's what many whistleblowers are going through as we speak. Life it became very difficult for me. Now, you've written a book that you've reper- referred to earlier, For My Country. And I must tell you a side story. I went to uh, the exclusive books to try and buy a copy. And they said there is one on the system. I went and then they said they cannot find it. It must have been stolen. There's something ironic about that. Well, yeah, the, the response from the public to my book was 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 overwhelming. Um, I've had to get complimentary copies for people who just wanted to read the book but did not have money to buy it. So wherever I went, uh, I kept copies to just give it to people who were looking to read the book. So I must say I am grateful. The response from the public was very positive. Um, it ended up being one of the bestsellers uh, nationally in the non-fiction section. So I'm grateful that the book did become uh, something of interest to many, many people. I see you traveled around the country giving signed copies to certain former leaders. Did your book tour ever take you to a certain overpriced uh, homestead with a fire pool? Um, the only president, uh, presidents, former presidents, I was able to give the books to uh, President Mbeki and Mutlante. But unfortunately, the trip to Nkanda is not possible, was not possible, and I don't think it will ever be possible because I don't think I will ever be welcomed in that part of the world. Well, that leads to my next question. Have you ever had any interaction with Mr. Zuma once you were removed from the GCIS? You you said you've received one phone call saying, please help my help the, the Gupta brothers out after you were fired. Have you and over the years, have you ever had any interaction with Mr. Zuma? I think one of my, my sense is that uh, Mr. Zuma, when he was president, he was actually quite paranoid. Um, so he distrusted most of the public servants who worked in the Mbeki administration because in his head, those of us who worked in government during Mbeki's time were part of the Mbeki factions. And when I eventually left government, there was never any communication whatsoever from him or the people around him. So the last time I actually had direct contact with or seen him was when I attended the ANC conference in um, 2017, and he was in the room. He was a few steps away from him. I can't tell whether he saw me or not, but ever since I left government, there has never been any contact between me and his office. Mr. Maseko, are you still a card-carrying member of the ANC? At this stage, uh, Michael, I'm not a card-carrying member of any political party. 
I just consider myself as just an, a citizen who wants to do good for, for my country and I'll continue saving the nation uh, without carrying the card of any political party. In your mind, even though you're not a member of the ANC anymore, let's say, do you make a distinction between the ANC of President Zuma and his successor, President Ramaphosa? Look, I think that the ANC is going through probably one of its most challenging times as a political party. I think that the factionalism has actually broken the party. I believe that there are some people who believe it can be saved. But from where I'm sitting the decline of the party has not stopped since the exit of uh, uh, President Zuma. And I think more work, they'll have to do more work to rebuild the party. Factionalism has actually affected the core of the party. And at this stage, I'm sitting, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not too optimistic about the problems it faces being resolved in the near future. Knowing the personal cost of whistleblowing, when someone like the national chair, Greta Mantashe, says that the report should only be used to rebuild and unify the party and not single out the guilty, what's your take on a comment like that? Any wrongdoing that is identified in the final report of the Zonda Commission must lead to consequences to people, be they in leadership of the ANC or government. And to suggest that what the report says must not be used to um, must be used to unite the party. It basically means that um, no action must be taken against those who broke the law, those who are implicated in corruption. And I don't buy that. I think that anybody who has been implicated in corruption must face consequences, be they in the party or in government. So the Zondo Commission report should not and cannot be a document to unite the wrongdoers and those who are trying to fix the problem. The commission says, quote, South Africa requires an anti-corruption body free from political oversight and able to combat corruption with fresh and concentrated energy, close quote. It kind of reminds me of the Scorpions. Have we gone full circle? I think we've definitely gone full circle. Um, the the anti-corruption body needs to be put in place, but you also need to make sure that, you know, resources are put into the National Prosecuting Authority because at the end of the day, the anti-corruption body will point fingers and say person A and B are involved in corruption. But at the end of the day, those people need to be prosecuted. It's only the NPA that can make sure that charge sheets are prepared, proper charge sheets are prepared, and those people are prosecuted uh, in a court of law because we can talk about investigating corruption, but unless people are held accountable and prosecuted, very little will indeed change. We've had whistleblowers murdered in this country, Babita Diokar and just the, the latest. There's recommendations to start an, ag- an agency from the commission, but that could take years, one that supports uh, whistleblowers financially, mentally, uh, and it still requires implementation, which could take years. It, it's it's too late for people like yourself, but are you in support of the recommendation going forward? I think that um, the, the commission is giving the country at least a model that can be put in place to actually deal with all of these challenges of state capture and corruption. But in the short term, I would say the, the president owes this country one big present, and that present is making resources available to the NPA and making sure that, in fact, it can 
take all the evidence from the Zondo Commission and convert that evidence into charge sheets and take those charge sheets to a court of law so that people can be prosecuted. I am extremely worried about the leadership of the police services as we speak because a lot of these cases may require investigation. And at this stage, I'm worried about the law enforcement agency's capacity to investigate all of these cases to make sure that, in fact, the Zondo Commission doesn't end up end up being just another commission report that we file, we file in our cabinets and forget about. I was sorry to read about a recently terrifying experience that, uh, that you had at your home and you were woken at 3.30 in the morning with uh, criminals inside or on your roof. Uh, you ended up firing warning shots to scare them off general crime or no such thing as coincidence? I'm, I'm at this stage am concerned about the security of whistleblowers in general. In my case, it could be a, a normal crime event, but it still remains very suspicious in my view. The timing of it happening so soon after the, the release of the Zonda Commission report, the fact that there was no attempted break-in in any of the rooms that could have been broken into if criminals were interested in stealing anything. The fact that there was a focus on my bedroom in particular is suspect. The fact that the intruders avoided CCTV cameras and made their way to the roof of my house does make it suspicious. But my anticipation is that as we move closer to the final report being released and the possibility of court cases being instituted against all those who are implicated in the Zondo Commission report, I worry about the security of whistleblowers who may be expected to give evidence in a court of law. And I hope government is doing all it can to make sure that, in fact, some security is provided to all whistleblowers because these criminals, these facilitators and participants in state capture must be worried wherever they are, and they are going to try and do all they can to intimidate whistleblowers from giving evidence in a court of law. So this is something that I expect more and more whistleblowers may experience these kinds of break-ins um, and government should be taking note of this as a matter of urgency. I'd like to finish off by reading a, an extract from page 497. The finding that President Zuma gave Minister Chabane an instruction to fire Mr. Maseko or move him out of the GCIS is of great significance in understanding Mr. Zuma's role in state capture and advancing the interests of the Guptas and his family at the expense of the interests of the people of South Africa. President Zuma was prepared to throw his own comrade in the ANC, Mr. Maseko, a well-performing civil servant, into the street just because he had refused to be party to a corrupt arrangement sought by the Guptas. Mr. Maseko, thank you. Thank you, sir. 